Amen. Amber, can you throw those words back up here? We, we need to sing that again. Um, this is what we do. This is our, the whole reason we gather is to praise the name of Jesus. So stand up. We can't sit. Stand up. <clears throat> and we need to lift our voices to our Savior and praise his name this morning. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. And all God's people said, Amen. Go ahead and take a seat and take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we've been praising the name of our Lord as we've been studying the road to the crucifixion. We have been studying the gospel of John and just specifically these last couple of months, we've been looking at uh, what the path that Jesus took looked like and how it looks like it's his darkest moment. And yet in his darkest moment, his glory is shining most brilliantly. And in your darkest moment, if you are a child of God, God is working for your greatest good, even in the darkest moment. There is so much that we've been learning, and uh, these last couple weeks we've been looking specifically at the crucifixion, Jesus being nailed to a piece of wood. And we've been talking about how the, the gospel writers do not speak about the agony of what it would have been. Number one, because the readers would know when they say they crucified Jesus, they know exactly what that means. But also the physical aspect of the cross truly did not mean anything to Jesus. That's not why he was weeping in the garden of Gethsemane. That's not why he was in agony. It's the fact that he is going to bear the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. He's going to experience hell on the cross. And we're going to look at that specifically next week when darkness hits, three hours of darkness, even though it's the middle of the day. And we've been looking at the prophecies that have been fulfilled. John wants to show us prophecy after prophecy after prophecy about Jesus that's being fulfilled specifically in what's going on at the crucifixion. It looks like he is being arrested and he is the one doing the arresting. It looks like he is being conquered, and he is the one that is currently conquering. When it looks like he's most out of control, that is when he is truly working every single aspect, every detail in control for his glory and for our good. So we'll pick up the story in John 19, starting in verse 17, reading all the way down to verse 27. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, and they crucified him there, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it. We'll cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Father, we enter yet again into the Holy of Holies. We are standing on holy ground as we interact with these words. We, we have sung rich songs that are really a prayer 
for this sermon. We, we have talked about standing beneath the cross and wondering at the mercy of God and, and thinking, casting our minds at Calvary, thinking as if Jesus had just died yesterday, as if we were there. Even in the, the gloom of this specific day, we can think of the gloom of those three hours and beyond into the remainder of Friday night and how hopeless the disciples felt, how hopeless the world seemed. God, we want to stand at the foot of Calvary. We want to smell the, the dirt being kicked up by the Roman soldiers working their trade. We want to hear the screams reviling Jesus sarcastically. If you could take yourself down, then we would believe. We want to hear the, the silent weeping past the point of even audible crying, the weeping of the women of John and of Jesus' own mother. We want to feel the weight of what it must have felt like for her to stand watching her son murdered on a cross. God, we know truths, but we don't want the truths to just be knowledge. We want them to affect us and change us. But we know that that's impossible apart from your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see, to feel, to understand, to comprehend. May we not leave here unaffected. Be our guide this morning and show us Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. These verses, we studied the majority of this text that I just read last Sunday, and I would encourage you to listen to that sermon if you weren't able to be here last Sunday. And we're going to look this morning just simply at verses 25 through 27, and then we have to go over to the Synoptic Gospels to fill out this account. But we're just going to look at two sayings. We're going to look at uh, the second and third saying from the cross. So the first one, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And then Jesus is going to speak what he speaks here in John of uh, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And then Jesus is going to speak to a thief on the cross. We're going to look at those two today. And just very simply, two sayings, two prophecies fulfilled in the sayings. So if you want alliteration, two pronouncements and two prophecies, but very clearly what Jesus is doing here is so impactful and powerful for the way that we live our lives. He's been nailed to a tree and his hands cannot move and yet he is still going to minister. His feet are pinned to a tree and he cannot walk and yet he is still going to minister the gospel and the effects of the gospel to those around him. It is still uh, daylight. Um, he is crucified at nine and from nine to noon, there's a lot of talking happening. When noon hits and darkness hits over the land, there is no speaking. And then Jesus will say four very quick staccato statements at the very end of those three hours. He can't even talk during those three hours because he's bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. But here, he is still able to speak and he speaks very clearly. And he speaks to his mom. So let's look at the first statement. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. There are four women named in verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, that's number one, his mother's sister, number two, Mary the wife of Clopas, number three, and Mary Magdalene. So two named, two unnamed. Some people would see it as three that Mary's uh, sister is Mary the wife of Clopas, but that's not the way that this text reads. So four women, two of them are unnamed. One is the mother of Jesus, that's Mary. One is uh, the uh, mother of Jesus' sister, most Bible scholars think that this woman is uh, Salome, who's the wife of Zebedee, so the mother of John and James. That's based on Matthew 27 and Mark 15. So you have Mary, you have Salome, you have Clopas, Mary the wife of Clopas. Clopas is uh, the, the, uh, another name for St. Alphaeus. It's a different form of Alphaeus. So this is the uh, mother of James, the son of Alphaeus, so another disciple, another apostle. 
And then Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, Luke 8, says that she had seven demons cast out of her. Um, There's a tradition that says that she was an adulterer and a prostitute. That's not biblical. That's just tradition. I don't believe that she was. Four women around the cross. And then we also see that John is there. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. So we have five people. But why does John include this statement? Why does he include the words that Jesus is saying? And why does he include it here? Why does he include it at all? And why does he include it now? Why does he include it at all? I believe it's because he was there. And there are moments in your life, you have them, right? There's moments in your life that you will never forget. There's good moments in your life you'll never forget. I will never forget December 21st, it was a Sunday morning. I was preaching through Psalm 1, and it was the day that I was going to propose to my wife. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget what I was wearing. I'll never forget what happened that day. I'll never forget anything about that day. I'll never forget the color of the wrapping paper that I used to wrap the Christmas present that I gave her that was a Bible with her married name on it that said, I love you, and I asked her to propose. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the way that she looked walking down the aisle on our wedding day. I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget holding my daughter for the first time and feeling like my world just shattered. Like what just happened to my heart? What just happened to my life? Something has changed and my world is completely different. I'll never forget where I was and I'll never forget the distinct smells of holding my son for the very first time when he was crying after disobeying and he told me, Daddy, I need a Savior. I'll never forget where we were and and what had happened and I'll never forget the way that that moment transpired. Good moments that are just burned into your mind. But we also have bad moments that we'll never forget, right? I'll never forget where I was what I was wearing, what my friend was wearing when we were listening to a radio station and we both found out on a Tuesday morning that the Twin Towers had been attacked. I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget. My my buddy was wearing a a very tan, huge uh, jacket. I was in high school and the jacket was way too big for this guy, but he was wearing it and had one of those zip around hoodie things so you could zip and pull a hoodie out and then shove it back in, but it looked like this big collar around him. I'll never forget thinking, I don't know what's happening, but this is bad. Something bad is happening. I'll never forget those moments. I'll never forget what slide I was teaching from when I was teaching my Bible class, what PowerPoint slide I was using when I got a text from Hannah that said, you need to call me right away. And I called her. She never texted me during class. And I called her and she said, you need to come to the hospital. Our son needs open heart surgery. I'll I'll never forget. I teach every year through that. And every time I get to that slide, I press a button, I look at it, and there's something in me that goes, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the smell of the hand sanitizer in his hospital room. It's very distinct. And every once in a while, there's something that kind of smells like it in the other parts of the world that you kind of interact with. And you go, oh, that's kind of it, but that's not it. But I'll never forget that. I'll never forget there's a distinct beep to the heart monitor that he was wearing. And every once in a while, I'll hear a beep like that, and it will remind me of that. And I know that you have moments like that. So John here... There's a moment that is etched in his memory forever. I mean, what would it be like to be standing at the foot of a cross, blood running down, watching your Savior, your best friend that you've given your life for the last three and a half years, and he's being murdered, innocent? You're not going to be able to forget anything that happens in that moment. And so he includes this because this is burned into his brain. He will never be able to forget these words. But why here? Why specifically now? Well, you remember in verse 25, the soldiers did these things. These things is casting lots for the tunic. And you remember the custom of the tunic was 
that the mom would make this tunic and give it to the son who was leaving the home for good. So I believe that Jesus is watching everything transpire in front of him, nailed to a cross, and he sees the Roman soldiers making fun of his tunic. This is a joke to them. Should we gamble for his underwear? Let's gamble for his underwear. This is a joke. And they're sarcastically saying these things so that the prisoners are even further belittled. And as they say, yeah, this, this lousy piece of fabric, should we gamble? Let's not split it. This is really an important piece of fabric. Let's, let's keep it. Let's hold it. I want it. Let's gamble for it. Mary's there. Mary gave that tunic to her son the day that her son said, I'm leaving for ministry. And I think that Jesus, watching his mother watch the soldiers gambling for his tunic, speaks into that moment. This has to be heartbreaking. And he says, Mom, I want you to know that you're going to be taken care of. I want you to know. William Barclay says, there is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he was taken away. Samuel Johnson says, if, if ever there was a moment when we could expect a man to think only of himself, it's at the hour of his death. If you ever get a, a free pass to say, you know what, I'm not going to serve anybody, I just got to think about me right now, is when you're dying. And yet when Jesus is dying, he says, I am thinking about others. He's going to think about his mom. He's going to serve the thief on the cross. So he calls out to her. And he says, end of verse 26, woman, woman. Now, this sounds harsh. It's not. It's a, it's a very endearing term. But what it isn't is mother. And there's a reason why he's not calling her mother. And she would know this. She has ringing in her mind, John 2, when at the wedding of Cana, Jesus says, woman, what business do we have with each other? Woman, you are no longer an authority over me as my mother. This relationship is done. It's a new relationship. I still love you. I still care for you, but it's a new relationship. So here, Jesus says, we are still in that different relationship, but I'm going to care for you. I'm going to care for you. And he's going to turn his mother over to John, the gospel writer, the apostle, the only disciple that's there at the foot of the cross. He's going to turn his mother over to his care. Why? Well, for one thing, Joseph's not mentioned. Uh, he's more than likely dead. Most people would think he had died by this time. The last time Joseph is mentioned is when Jesus had stayed behind in Jerusalem in the temple when he was 12 years old. That's the last time we hear of Joseph. Uh, all throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry, we don't hear of Joseph being alive. So Joseph's gone. So when Jesus is caring for his mom. When Jesus dies, Mary's not going to be taken care of by anybody in her family. And that's really the second point. Not only is Joseph gone, but Jesus' siblings couldn't care less about Mary. They couldn't care less. We know, biblically, that they did not believe. John chapter 7, verse 5, his brothers didn't believe, his sisters didn't believe. Now, we know the rest of the story. They end up believing. James believes, Jude believes. But on the cross, Jesus is dying with the heaviness of the knowledge that he's rejected not only by the Romans and the chief priests, but he's also rejected by his own siblings. And so he says, I know that they're not going to take care of you, Mom, so I need to make sure you're taken care of. I need to make sure that you're taken care of. Do you have family members that you love? Of course you do. How much more do you think that Jesus infinitely holy loved his own family? Do you have family members that do not know Jesus? How much more does Jesus know that his family members don't believe in him, in him and his ministry and the gospel? He's been there. He knows what you're going through. He knows that feeling of despair. He is dying without the knowledge of their repentance. And he's dying knowing they hate him. They think he's a joke. And so Jesus says, Mom, you need to be taken care of, but I know that my family's not going to take care of you. I know they're not going to take care of you. So he turns to John, and he says, Behold your mother. So to his mother, woman, behold your son. And to John, son, behold your mother. 
What is Jesus doing here? Not only taking care of one another, but Jesus is redefining who truly compromises a family. This is amazing what Jesus is doing here. He's redefining at the foot of the cross who defines a family. He had already done that. Uh, If you were to turn back to Luke 8, just write down Luke 8, verse 19 through uh, 21, and Mark chapter 3, verse 33, you would see Jesus saying this very thing. People say, hey, your parents are here, your your mom's here, your your family's here, you're, you're hanging out with your family. And he says, who is my family? Luke chapter 8, verse 19, his mother and his brothers came and they're unable to get into the house through the crowd. In verse 20, it was reported to him, hey, they're outside. Your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They're wishing to see you. But he answered and said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So he had already changed family dynamics. But here he is defining them. Whoever hears the word of God and does it, Jesus says, has more ready access to Jesus' fellowship than even Jesus' own family who doesn't believe. He's changing relationships. And just as he's saying to John, you now have a mother that you need to take care of, even though John's own mother is there. He's saying, you need to take care of my mom as if she were your mom because she is in the family of God. And mom, you need to take care of John as if he was your son because he is your son in the family of God. He's changing relationships. We are more family together here in this group of believers than we are even with our own blood relatives who don't know Jesus. That doesn't diminish our standing with our blood relatives who don't don't know Jesus. We're still family. It enhances, it deepens our relationship with one another who know Jesus. This is what I love about being in the family of God. It doesn't matter who you are or what season of life you are in. You're intimately connected with people who love, cherish, encourage, and hold you up no matter who you are or what season you're in. Just some examples. You may be from another country. We have several people in our church who are from another country. And in the world's eyes, in our country's eyes, you're not from here. You're not from here. But in our eyes, with the eyes of the family of God, this is right where you belong. You are exactly where you should be. This is home. You're accepted, you're loved, you're cared for, you're connected. Maybe you've lost a spouse. We have many in our church who have lost a spouse. And in the world's eyes, you're alone. You're by yourself. You're on your own. But in the eyes of the family of God, you are never forsaken. You're never neglected. You're never on your own. You are currently betrothed, like all of us are, to the Savior who has promised he will never leave you or forsake you, and we're here with you. You may be a parent. You may feel all alone in parenting as you're wrestling with your child's heart praying, God, let them hear the word. Let them be changed. Let them see Jesus as lovely and beautiful and everything that their heart desires. And you're just, it's falling on deaf ears. And constantly you think, I'm a failure and there's no one who can help me. Well, this text tells us that you have mothers and fathers. You have other parents who might not even have kids. But in the family of God, they can help you parent your kids. Because in the family of God, We are never alone. All of our relationships have changed. And the love of Jesus knits us, binds us, unifies all of us. This is what I absolutely love about our church. Even in a small church, you could could literally look around and see that we have people from different countries, from different walks of life. We have people in different seasons. We have people with different hobbies, with different desires, different jobs, different dreams, different goals and aspirations. And we walk in this door and we're all the same. We're family. We're family. Why? Because of what Jesus is doing here at the cross, everything changes in your family. Everything changes. We're brothers. We're sisters. You remember... When the rich man came to Jesus and said, what one thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus ends that, that question, that comment with, uh, you have to go out, sell everything you have, give to the poor. And he says, I can't do that. He walks away sad. Remember what Peter says? Peter, good old Peter, jumps in and goes, hey, we did that. We, you told him to go sell everything, leave home, leave everything, and come follow. Um, he couldn't, but we did. We're awesome, right? 
And Jesus says, truly I say to you, no one has left father or mother or household or land or money or jobs who will not receive them back 100-fold. Peter says, come on, we're following you. What do we get? We've left everything. What do we get? And Jesus says, you left your mom, you left your dad, and you're following me, and I promise you, you will get 100 more times that. How is that answered? How is that prayer answered? How is that statement answered? When does it come to fruition? How is it fulfilled? It's fulfilled in the church. You leave father and mother to get plugged into the family of God, and you've gained hundreds of fathers and mothers. At the cross, in the family of God, our relationships have changed. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But you have to be near the cross to hear these words spoken over you and to be in this relationship. You have to be near the cross. In one sense, this is an incredibly risky thing for Mary and Mary and um, all these different people to be involved in, for John to still be there. This is a very risky thing to identify yourself with a criminal who's up on a cross because maybe they'll just take you and throw you up on a cross. So this is very risky for John to be there and it's very risky for us to step out in faith and obey the Lord and follow in repentance what the gospel of Jesus Christ has commanded us to do. But in another sense, you're no safer than you are. Even in the most risky place, you are safe because you are beneath the cross, you are under the word of God, and you're cared for. Look at what would have happened if Mary and John had said, we can't follow, that's too dangerous. They wouldn't have heard these words. Mary would have gone her way, John would have gone his way. No one would have cared for the other. But here, while both dangerous and risky, it is also the safest place you will be where you are most cared for at the foot of the cross. Jesus is eager to care for his own. And if it's here that he's eager to care for his own family, how much more so the family of God that includes us, that he promised in John 17 would be kept and unified and loved. And if Jesus could provide the needs of his own household in a moment of his deepest weakness and humiliation, stuck on a cross, if he could still provide, how much more can he provide now that he's not on a tree any longer? How much more can he provide now when he is presently in power, exalted at the right hand of God? And not only are we as obedient people in a better position to receive that blessing than even Jesus' own mother was, but now Jesus is in a better position to give us that blessing, no longer nailed to a tree. So as one commentator says, let us take courage in the care and the power and provision of our Lord. If he was eager to care for his mother, how much more eager will he be today to care for those who hear and do the word of God who are part of his family? If Jesus could provide the needs of his own in the moment of his greatest weakness and humiliation, how much more can he provide now in his present wealth of power and exaltation? And if Jesus purchased the church with his own blood and ordained that in it bereft mothers find sons and sons find mothers, then no one should be without a caring family today in the body of Christ. Jesus changes our relationships, but you have to live in the shadow of the cross. Notice what has to happen. You have to live in the shadow of the cross. You have to listen to the words of the Savior, and you have to do what they say. If John had just heard those words and said, great, and then Jesus dies, and "Eh, I'm not doing that. No good news for Mary. But standing at the foot of the cross, John hears Jesus' command, and he knows what Jesus is commanding him is to be Jesus' own hands and feet. He can't minister with his hands or his feet. So Jesus says, John, do what I wish I could do. I wish I could care. I was caring. I have been caring this whole time. But I'm no longer here. That's what we talked about this morning in Family Bible Hour. Show and tell. Display the gospel and declare the gospel. Jesus cares for his mother, knowing the pain of unbelieving siblings who have rejected him and changes family relationships at the cross. That's the pronouncement. That's the the word. That's the first word that we're covering today from the cross. It's the second in a, a line of seven phrases from the cross. Now prophecy fulfilled in that statement. Turn over to Luke chapter 2. There is a prophecy that is fulfilled in this statement. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 25, there's a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. And this man is a righteous and devout man looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit's upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, so this is Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus in to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and he blessed God and said, this is one of those spots where we're just told by Luke what happened. There, there isn't a description of how this interchange happened, but in my mind, because I'm just taking what Luke says, Mary and Joseph are walking in, and you see a man filled with the Spirit, and he just goes, give me that baby, grabs the baby, and starts speaking. And Mary and Joseph are okay with that to a certain degree. I don't know what they're thinking. I know for me, somebody comes up to me and says, hey, can I grab your baby? Um, who are you? Uh, never met you. What's your social security number? Let me have a credit card, your passport. Hang on. There's, time. There's a huge uh, triage of things that have to happen before that. But here... Just give me the baby. Verse 28. And he blesses God. Now, Lord, you're releasing your slave to depart in peace. Finally, this is the promised Messiah. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepare in the presence of all people in the light of revelation to the Gentiles. That's very interesting. Messiah has been given to the Gentiles. Whoa, time out. Messiah goes to the Jews, but that's another sermon for another time. And the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. This is interesting. We were kind of scared that a stranger just took our baby, but he's saying really good things about our baby, so this is okay. In verse 34, Simeon blessed them. And then he speaks to Mary. He blesses Mary and Joseph, and then he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel, a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. To the end, that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Just think about the way in which Simeon would have said that. He is just smiling, rejoicing. The Messiah is here. This is the Messiah. We've been longing for him. We've been praying. Now I can depart. I can finally get out of here and go home. And then he blesses Mary and Joseph. You are blessed to bear the Messiah. And then he blesses Mary and he says, you're blessed to bear the Messiah. And then I see his, his face changing. I see his tone of voice changing. And he says, there's coming a day when a sword's going to pierce your heart. And I hear Mary going, you know what? I was kind of scared with a stranger taking my baby. And then I was really happy with what the stranger said. This is awesome. But Joseph, what does he mean by a sword will pierce my heart? What does that mean? I wonder if that hung over her head in her entire life all the way until this day. This is three decades before the cross. What happened? What transpired between those three decades? She had heard people whisper about how her son was an illegitimate child. He was born out of wedlock. Of course he can't be the Messiah, much less the Son of God. No way. She knew that people in her hometown, the city of Nazareth, had tried to take Jesus and throw him off of a cliff. Maybe even one of her neighbors told her that. You know, uh, remember Billy? Um, he doesn't like your son. And he got a huge mob together to try and kill him. She knew that Jesus was a wanted man by the religious authorities, but none of those were the sword that Simeon prophesied. A.W. Pink says, never such bliss at human birth, never such sorrow at an inhumane death. The one who had kissed her son's forehead now watched as blood poured from the wounds on his brow. She who had held those precious little hands as Jesus had learned to walk now saw those hands pinned to a piece of wood. And she cannot do a thing to alleviate his pain. She would gladly, parents, you know this, I would gladly take the place of my children when they're in pain. But she can't. She cannot take her son's place because her son 
is the only one who can do what he's doing. Save sinners. So a prophecy three decades earlier is fulfilled in this very moment. Go in Luke to the end of his gospel. Luke chapter 23. We will see the second saying this morning. The third saying from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And then the third saying, the second that we're looking at this morning, is said to a thief on the cross. Verse 39 is where we will pick it up. But you remember in John, John told us Jesus is nailed between two thieves. And they're not just thieves as far as they stole something. That's not demanding of crucifixion. They are thieves as far as they stole from Rome. They are in the company of Barabbas. In fact, I think that as they are nailed to a piece of wood and Jesus is raised up between them, I think they look and they go, who are you? Why is Barabbas not here? Barabbas is the one who should be here. And Barabbas is the leader of that band of murderers. Remember, Josephus tells us thieves, murderers, and rapists. So these are not just thieves as far as common criminal is concerned. And Jesus is right in the middle. Jesus at his birth was surrounded by animals, by beasts of the field, and at his death he is surrounded by criminals. So we know by implication you can never say that Jesus was ever aloof. That word does not describe Jesus. He was never aloof from our brokenness, from our fallen world. He dove right in and redeemed it from the moment he was born to the moment that he died. So, two robbers crucified, two thieves, two criminals. Verse 39, Luke chapter 23, verse 39. The criminals were hanging there and they were hurling abuse at him. This is really important to know because verse 39 says one of the criminals was hurling abuse. But Mark tells us in Mark chapter 15, verse 32, that both of them were insulting when they were both nailed. So just picture in your mind, nine o'clock, they're all nailed to pieces of wood, raised up on crosses, and both criminals are reviling, insulting, sarcastically saying comments and mocking Jesus. Both are. That's important to know because it seems like, if you just read Luke, it seems like one's always been righteous and one's always been guilty. But on the cross, both of them are guilty, revilers, mocking, jeering. But then one stops, and that's in verse 40. The other answered and rebuked his friend, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So these guys have both been going at it with Jesus saying, You are such a fraud, you are such a fake, mocking, reviling. And then one breaks into his partner's comment and says, stop. Why? Why the change? Why begin reviling and then say, I'm done. And you should be too. Why? I think it's because this man has been witnessing Jesus ministering. This man was nailed to a cross just like Jesus was. And Jesus, when he was nailed to a cross cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. While this man probably was cursing at his executioners. And then this man sees the love that Jesus has to minister to his mother in an hour of need, in a, in a moment when Jesus has all right to say, I'm done ministering. I just have to hang on for dear life here. And I think that he connects the dots. Remember we talked last week in John 19, Pilate had put that, that statement, that titulus over Jesus' cross that said, he, King of the Jews. We said that that's the first gospel tract because this man's going to look and say, who are you? You're saying weird things for a dying man. And then he looks up and he sees King of the Jews. Remember, he's going to say, remember me when you enter your kingdom. How does he know he's a king? Because of that sign. And he's going to connect the dots and say, there is not a man on the face of the earth that would be dying the way you are if you weren't someone special. You are special, and you are a king. And so he says, verse 41, we indeed are suffering justly for what we are receiving. We deserve what we are receiving for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. I love the thief on the cross because he's a picture of the gospel. I share the gospel so often from the thief on the cross. This man is obviously a very bad guy because he's being crucified. And 
he is a bad guy when he's nailed to the cross because he's reviling Jesus. He is mocking the Son of God. But then something changes, and he says three very important things. Number one, I deserve what I'm getting. I deserve my punishment. I am guilty. Number two, he does not deserve his punishment. He is innocent. I am guilty. Jesus is innocent. And then number three, you know the statement. Jesus, verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He does not say, okay, I'm guilty. Jesus, you're innocent. So number three, can you please tell me what I have to do to enter your kingdom? Doesn't say that. Um, I'm guilty, Jesus. You are innocent. Jesus, can you give me a prayer that I'm supposed to pray? Can you help me with uh, three or four steps that I'm supposed to do to get saved? He knows he's completely hopeless. He's stuck to a tree. So he's not saying, what one thing do I need to do to be saved? He says, I can't do anything. Will you save me? Will you save me? A.W. Pink says, This man could not walk in the paths of righteousness, for there was a nail through his feet. He could not perform any good works, for there was a nail through either hand. He could not turn over a new leaf and live a better life because he was dying. He is helpless. But helplessness is never a curse if it draws us to the only one who can help us. And so this man's helplessness drives him to Jesus. So he says, will you remember me? You're a king, you have a kingdom, and all I'm asking is that you remember me. And Jesus says, I'll do you one better. Today, you'll be with me. I'm not just going to remember you. You're going to be with me today. Herschel York says, nothing puts the principalities and powers of hell to shame like granting eternal life to someone at the very gates of hell. Yeah, Satan, you lose this one too. You lose this one too. Notice, this man doesn't have to go through a period of cleansing. He doesn't have to go through purgatory. He doesn't have to be baptized. He doesn't have to do any good works. He can't do any good works. Jesus is paying for the penalty that he deserves on the cross. And he's going to give this man his complete record of righteousness. He believes. Will you remember me? And Jesus says today, this very day, this man... Remember the disciples in the upper room? They say, Jesus, where are you going? We want to be with you. And he says, you will be, but you can't be with me now. And they, come on, Jesus, we want to be. We've been with you for three and a half years. Take us with you. And he says, not now, later. This thief on the cross gets to be with Jesus before the disciples do. Jesus dies before the thief does, right? He's going to die. The two thieves are on the cross. They have to have their legs broken. They will die. Jesus is going to be in heaven applauded by the angels, God the Father, my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. And I just, I see in my sanctified imagination, Jesus speaking with the, the saints of old and, and telling them it's done, it's done. And I'm going to be raised from the dead and conquer sin and death. And this is over. It's done. It's paid in full. And then he says, hang on, time out. I need to welcome somebody. And wherever the entrance to heaven is, he goes over to it and he says, thief on the cross. Welcome home. I told you today you'd be with me. Today. The thief believes. He believes before the centurion says, truly this man is the son of God. Even when Jesus seems helpless, this man believes. And that's the entire point of the gospel of John. If you just believe in Jesus because of his signs, there's reason to doubt that belief. But if you can believe in Jesus because you simply believe the truth of who he is, regardless of the signs, by his word and his word alone. Think of this man, by the words of Jesus, Father, forgive him, mother, behold your son, this man sees, hears, and believes. And then he goes through, my opinion, a little bit of a test. Because he believes, he says, will you remember me? And Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. Today we're going to heaven. And he must have just breathed a huge sigh of relief. I'm saved. The, the king of the universe is going to welcome me into his kingdom. This is great. And then three hours later, Jesus is going to cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus is going to whisper, I'm thirsty. The sky is going to go dark. And I think this man might have thought, maybe he's not a king because God's forsaken him. I don't know if I want to follow a guy who's been forsaken. And he's thirsty. Wait, if he's God, he wouldn't be thirsty. Maybe he's just a man. And in his doubts, he goes, no, I believe the word. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And he clings to that hope to the very moment that he dies. Once Jesus had spoken, that was it. And upon that word, the thief placed his whole hope. One preacher says, One was saved that one not despair. One was saved that day. There is nobody beyond the place of salvation. One was saved that one would not despair. But only one was saved that one would not presume. Jesus did not say, Today you both will be with me in paradise. He says, To the one who admits their guilt, admits their need for a Savior, pleads the innocent blood of Jesus, and does not attempt to work on their own to burn off their bad works, only that person who would walk in repentance can be saved. So when we come to the thief on the cross, we have to see a picture of ourselves. Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to a place where you are completely hopeless? You're not looking saying, well, I'm better than so-and-so. And I'll use that when I get to God. Well, I know I shouldn't be in heaven, but I'm really better than that guy, so let me in. I tried really hard. This thief says none of those things. And I would plead with you this morning, if you have not come to the end of yourself, today is the day of salvation to say, I am a sinner. I've broken God's law. I'm a lawbreaker. And if you break the law of an infinitely holy God, then your punishment is going to be infinitely holy. It's going to be an infinite punishment. I have broken the law. I can't get to God on my own. I can't be good enough because I'm imperfect. I have broken the law. I'm a lawbreaker. But Jesus is perfect. He lived a perfect, sinless life that I could never live, that I needed to live to get to God on my own, but I never could. And so I plead the blood of Christ in my account. I, by faith, run to Jesus. And I, by faith, say, I want his perfection. And by faith, you grab hold of Christ and his perfect life and his perfect death where God the Father treated Jesus as if he had lived your sinful life so that he could now treat you as if you had lived Jesus' sinless life. And you live in the power of the resurrection, turning from sin, turning to Christ, and following him all of your days. Today is the, is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ. How can we trust in Jesus? How is he the only way to be saved? How does he save us? Jesus is going to say these three statements, Father, forgive them. Mother, behold your son. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then the sky is going to go dark. And next Sunday we will look at the answer to that question of how Jesus saves us. He does that saving work from noon to three. And he'll cry out on the cross, from the cross, four statements at the very end of those three hours. And those statements are statements that we need to hear every second of every day of our lives. So I invite you to invite others to come and to hear the gospel, that they would understand the grace of Jesus that is theirs for the taking, if by faith they would turn from sin and turn to Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your precious gospel. We thank you for the unending implications of these verses. I mean, we could just go on and on and on about what these verses teach us and the implications of these verses for our lives. But this morning, we are reminded of the ministry and the care of our Savior. We're reminded of the newness of our family. You have changed family dynamics forever, and we need to live that out. We need to be so intentional about imaging this kind of new family with one another in our church body that you would, by grace, change our hearts to see each other as brother, sister, mother, father. That's what Paul says, even in 1 Timothy that we studied together a couple weeks ago. If you have to say a, a difficult statement to an older man in the faith, 
Treat him as a father. Don't rebuke him sharply, but treat him as a father. So God, may we live out the gospel dynamics of a new family in our church. And God, you know our hearts. You know that there are many here that love you, that have seen themselves in the place of this thief on the cross, that understand they deserve punishment. They accept that, they own that, and they glory in their own shame because it is by their hopelessness that you jump in to help them. You don't help people who think they can do it themselves. You just give them a chance to try. So God, bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would see like the thief, even though we're not pinned to a tree, our hearts are. Our hearts are helpless. We cannot do anything to earn your favor. We simply believe in the favor that was earned by Jesus on our behalf at the cross. And so for those in this room that don't know you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would see their need, their hopelessness, and they would, they would see Jesus for who he is, lovely, glorious, worthy of all praise and honor, and worthy of their following him the rest of their days. God, for those who have turned from sin to follow you, have owned their hopelessness, and live every day in light of the gospel, God, may sin become more and more disgusting in our view. May Christ become more and more satisfying in every moment of life. And may we all together run to the fountain now, filled with blood. Oh, the strangeness of the songs we sing as believers, singing of fountains filled with blood and and glorying in a sacrificial lamb, but he is our life. These are not strange to people who know that Jesus is our only hope. So may we sing, even as we sang earlier, oh, praise the name of the Lord Most High. Praise his name forever. For endless days we will sing his praise. So let's start today. Clasp the cross, the cross together. Clasp onto it. Grip it with everything that we have. Cling to it. And glory in our Savior. Hear our praises now from hearts that are filled with joy and gratitude. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.